You are listening to the Alouette's Flight Deck, a proud member of the Canadian Football Podcast Network. All right, folks, we've been cleared for takeoff. I'm going to be iconic. Welcome to the Alouette's Flight Deck, the podcast dedicated to Montreal Alouette's football. I'm Cliffy D, and you can find me on Twitter at Cliffy D. And I'm Tim Capper. You can find me on Twitter also. Nope. And, and I'm Tim Capper. You can also find me on Twitter, but at Repact. That's R-E-P-P-A-C-T. And this episode is presented by our good friends over at Sport Buffer. If you use the promo code Owls Flight Deck 10 at checkout, you will save 10% off your entire order. So head over to sportbuffshop.com, use the code, save 10% on all of their merchandise, and support local. And the Yellowwoods Flight Deck is all over social media and the World Wide Web. You can always find us at www.alouettesflightdeck.ca where our archive of seven-plus seasons is now available for your listening pleasure. Make sure you give us a follow on Twitter at Alouette's FL Deck. You can find us on Facebook over at facebook.com slash Alouette's Flight Deck Pod. Make sure you check out our Instagram, where we have been doing live streams and doing them quite well, I might say. Check that out over at instagram.com slash Alouette's Flight Deck. And of course... By all means, please support us over at our our store over at teespring.com slash stores slash Al's Flight Deck, where right now you can also save 10% off with the promo code, I believe it's ThankYou10, in in relation to our uh, cartoon bird shirt that has been selling extremely well, folks. And as a thank you, we wanted to give you a a promo for that. So make sure you check out the store. Anything you can do to help support us, uh, by all means, make sure you check out our YouTube page as well at youtube.com slash Alouette's Flight Deck, where our episodes you'll find there, our live streams, pretty much everything, you you can pretty much find everything there nowadays, which is is fantastic. Yes, yes, sir. Um, A long time coming. Uh, Couldn't have had a better guest host to do it with, dude. I want to welcome everybody to episode... 200 of the Alouette's Flight Deck Podcast. Uh, 200. <laughs> yeah. Who would have thought back in 2016 when we started this thing that we would be where we currently are today? So um, this is yeah. a normal standalone episode. You will be getting our breakdown of the Alouette's uh, win versus the Ottawa Red Blacks in episode 201. So stay tuned for that. So basically, you're you're getting a two for this week. Two for the price of one, folks. I mean, we're just giving away value all all the time, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> Promo codes, two for one podcast. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. Um, we 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 felt it was you know with it being such a special episode, uh, we felt that we we needed to have a a special guest to talk about uh, a, a very well known player not only in the uh, in Montreal uh, but also across the CFL and a gentleman who who was known for uh, not only for his receiving skill, uh, yards, touchdowns. But and I'm not going to call his claim to fame, but the best catch 
in CFL history that occurred on Canada Day in Saskatchewan uh, in 2010. Can you name who we're talking about? Can you name who we're going to be speaking with? Cliff, who are we having on our 200th episode extravaganza? Oh, my gosh. It is an honor and a privilege to announce that joining us on the flight deck for our episode 200 is none other than three-time Grey Cup champion, Montreal Alouettes legend, and Toronto Argonauts legend, too, but mostly (laughs) Montreal Alouettes legend, the one, the only, you know him as number 19. Ladies and gentlemen, we are thrilled, absolutely thrilled to announce that S.J. Green is going to be joining the flight deck. And we are so stoked. We are so excited to be able to welcome him on board, to share his story, to talk about his absolutely legendary career, and just see what he's up to nowadays. Yeah, that's true. Now, as, as I mentioned before, this is a standalone episode. It's also a long format episode. If you happen to remember the one that we had with Kevin Glenn a couple of, of episodes ago, uh, this is all about SJ and uh, is about his career uh, in football, what he did in Montreal, some stories that not many people have actually heard before. And we're going to be bringing them, bringing them to you this, uh, uh, this week. And uh, we're just uh, absolutely stoked. We absolutely are. So let's not let's not delay things. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, S.J. Green. And joining us on the line for our 200th episode of the Alouettes Flight Deck Podcast is a man that, quite frankly, is uh, an Alouettes legend, an unquestionable Alouettes legend. Uh, you know him as number 19. Uh, you also know him as a... Two-time with the Alouette Grey Cup champion, three times total, and arguably one of the most iconic members of this Alouette's organization. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, S.J. Green. S.J., welcome to the Alouette's flight deck. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. It's an honor to be here and to be a part of the 200th episode. Um, Even more humbling, so thank you guys for having me. Well, as I said, I mean, we wanted to go big. We wanted to do something big for the 200th episode. And let's face it, man. I mean, you talk about the LOS. You talk about everything that's gone on over the past 20 years. I mean, that time period when you were a part of this team, arguably some of the most successful CFL football that we have seen in our lifetime. And you were an integral part of it. So how could we not have you on? (laughs) Man, I, I tell you what, man. I didn't. I wasn't there alone. I had. I had a, a band of guys that were there with me to, you know, help me get to the status I was able to get to. So, you know, there were a lot of a lot of other guys that that, that you guys could have for the 200th episode. But again, I'm honored to be here, man. So again, thank you. Let's talk about SJ Green, the person. What got you into playing football? What was it that uh, sparked the interest in you becoming a, a football player? Well, if I'm being honest, um, it started for me back when I was a young kid. Um, always going back to my grandmother's house back in Montgomery, Alabama. My oldest cousin, uh, Michael Sean, would always, we called him Michael, but his name is uh, Michael, like, his name is Sean and Michael, so we, I, I call him Mike. So anyway, long story short, my big cousin Mike uh, used to throw the ball to us um, in the front yard of my grandma's house, and we would tackle each other. And I, from that moment on, I just kind of fell in love with the, with the sport, and then you know, every football season, I, I catch my dad watching the Cowboy games and throwing Super Bowl parties in the early 90s. And 
you know, I kind of fell in love with the theme of football. And I told my dad when I was eight years old, I wanted to go play, and he signed me up to go play. That was that was that was how it began for me. Okay, and what what led you to the receiver position? Well, my dad always told me when I was younger, he was like, you know, I love playing running back. I played running back my whole life growing mm-hmm. up. And he always told me, say, you know, son, you're probably not going to be a running back um, when you get older, so just enjoy it while you can. I never understood what he was saying, but I think I kind of outgrew the position height-wise. And, you know, as I got older, I wasn't as fast as I thought I was, so my position changed. So I was like, you know what, I think I could fit in on the on the receiver side of the ball. I grew up playing both sides of the ball, and as I got older, my offensive position just kind of naturally flowed to the receiver spot when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And uh, so I, I'm guessing you just pretty much start, went through Pop Warner uh, High School into uh, en- ending up over at the uh, University of South Florida? Yes, sir. All right. And yeah, I went to US. I went to USF. Yeah, I graduated from there in 07. So from from youth football to high school to USF. Right. And talk to us about uh, USF because uh, you know it's one of those programs that I think a lot of people sort of don't really know and appreciate too much. But uh, explain to us what the, the the bull culture is all about. It's a blue collar. It's, well, when I was there, I'll speak on behalf of when I was there. Um, it was a blue-collar environment. You know, we had Jim Levitt as our head coach. He was a hard-working guy, a guy who had been around, you know, the college rankings for a while and had an opportunity to coach his own team. And so he he coached us, his defensive-minded coach. And so that was a kind of our mentality. Our, our program was built on the strength of our defense every season. Um, I didn't play in prolific offenses in college. So it's not like we had a running gun and we're scoring 50 points a game. You know, our defense was kind of the mantra. And um, well, I say our defense was kind of the cornerstone of our team. And it, our, our defensive mindset was our mantra, so to speak. So, um, you know, with that being said, I kind of took on that mentality as well, just being there for four years and, you know, having a physical, uh, dominant approach to, to my game. You know, you didn't have a choice being at South Florida. You either had to... Either you either, either swim or you, or, or you sink, you know. You either, either, either fight or flight. And I just kind of decided to fight. And that's, that's kind of been my, my, my personality in regards to, to my game. No, interesting you bring up fight because I the one thing I do know about uh, USF is the war on I-4 against the University of Central Florida. I mean, talk about a great rivalry. Can, do you have any memories of that particular time? Like when you were with uh, USF, do you have any particular memories of the, the war on I-4? I mean, I'll be honest. When I was playing at USF, it, it wasn't much of a rivalry. We kind of, you know, we beat them every year that I played them. So I didn't think of a much of, of a rival, to be honest. But, you know, as, as history um, has, has, can prove that theory wrong, they've, they've been beating up on us as of lately. So I don't have very many memories of it. We, we used to beat them up pretty good when I played. But, um, you know, as lately, they kind of had our numbers, so I'll just leave it at that. So so it's so it's not really so much a war as it is sometimes it's a onslaught for you guys, it's sometimes <laughs> onslaught for them. Like, I mean, a war, sometimes you go back and forth, but it, this sounds pretty one-sided at times. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of been like that, man. But, I mean, you know, 
they're 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 a power five team. Um, you know, and they've they've made huge advancements in their program um, over the last you know decade or so. You know, they're they're playing power five Big Twelve football uh, this year. So, you know, you know, hopefully USF can can follow suit here over the next few years of becoming a power five school themselves. Hey, SJ, you were you were talking before about, you know, you asked your dad to, to go ahead and play some football. I mean, was there any apprehension at, uh, by, by him to let you play football, or was it was it a literally right away, yeah, sure, go ahead and play. I have no problem with you playing. It was right away. I mean, he, I, there was no apprehension. I didn't have any – there were no rebuttals when I said I wanted to play. He was just, okay, you want to play? I'll go sign you up. And he signed me up. Okay. Now, when it comes to football in general, obviously, you know, being a young kid, just running and, and playing football, as you said, starting off as a running back and make, and changing over to wide receiver. In your early days of college, of, of football, you know, college, et cetera, was there anybody that in particular that you look up to that you wanted to emulate when, when it became being a football player? Uh, yeah, there were. You know, there was a lot of players that I watched growing up. I grew up a Cowboy fan because my dad was a Cowboy fan. I think it just kind of rubbed off on me naturally. But, um, so I grew up watching the Cowboys in the early 90s. So, you know, watching Troy Aikman and Emmitt Smith and Michael Irvin was, you know, was, was, was the thing. And that's who I saw early on. But as I got older and started to develop more of an understanding of the game of football and, you know, fought, you know learning about different players, you know, Deion Sanders was always a favorite player of mine. Randy Moss. Um, was a favorite of mine, but you know, ultimately when I got to college and I mean, when I got to high school and started playing football, um, I, I really started to look up to Keyshawn Johnson as a football player, and that's kind of where I, I got the number 19 from. I wore 19 in high school. I didn't wear it in college, but when I made, made it to the CFL, I put the 19 back on um, because that number held a lot of significance to me. So, you know, Keyshawn was a big, was a big influence in my life growing up, especially, especially through the high school rankings, you know. Um, you know, me, again, like I told you, I, I kind of outgrew the position of running back. So I wasn't the fastest. And so, you know, I, I would always question myself, can I make it if I can't be, if I'm not, you know, the, the fastest receiver on the field? They always say you got to be fast to play receiver. So, I, you know, I was never the fastest receiver, but I watched Keyshawn, Keyshawn Johnson, and he wasn't the fastest receiver either, but he made plays and he made it look easy. And he gave me confidence, and he gave me, um, I won't say the ability, but he gave me the, the mental fortitude to know, to believe that it was possible to make it um, on that level. Being the type of player that he was, I think myself in him. So Keyshawn Johnson was uh, was my guy. Although, Randy, Randy Moss is my favorite receiver of all time. Well, I mean, you, I, I'm sure it, you know, when you look back at your, your body of work in the CFL, no doubt you definitely mossed a few people uh, along the way. So I, I'm sure that that influence was there. Yeah, uh, dad joke. Thanks, Cliff. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, what was it about Keyshawn and Randy? Was it the ability for them to, to get the 90-10 the ball? I mean, because obviously if everybody remembers your career in the CFL that we'll talk about here, obviously at length, but... What, what what in particular about their playing itself drew you to them and to be able to, to look at them and to like them as players? Well, for Keyshawn, it was the fact that he was 6'4", 220. And I saw myself kind of trending towards that that that, 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 that frame. Um, in high school, I was six, you know, 6'2". Um, 
six three in high school, like 195, almost 200 pounds as a senior. So I kind of saw myself turning in that direction as a, as far as my my my, my frame, my bills, and you know, watching him go across the middle and make catches, um, and you know, I know he had over 100 catches one year, and I think one touchdown or no touchdowns or something like that. But I just saw him constantly making plays. You know, from USC to to the Jets and to the to the Bucks here in Tampa, where I live, um, he was just he was a huge inspiration to me because again, he gave me the confidence to think to know that you know you can't make it not being super duper fast. You know, you just gotta have a, you gotta have a little something to you, but you know you don't have to run a four three to make it. And so that's why he was so inspiring to me. And then you know, just watching Randy Moss, you know, who, who doesn't love that as as a kid watching football. And he throw the ball up and he catches it you know, 90% of the time. So, you know, Randy Moss, again, to me, is the best receiver of, you know, of all time, in my opinion, from, a, from an NFL perspective. Like, he's, he's the GOAT to me. I know everybody loves J.A. Rice and, you know, other guys are up for debate, but for me, it's Randy Moss. And so, uh, those are guys that I, you know, I, I, I tried to emulate my game after. You know, I wasn't always successful, but I, I, I tried my hardest. So going through all the trials and tribulations of college football, uh, how did you end up in the Canadian Football League? Like, what, what, what was it that drew you to pr- pursuing a professional career in Canada? Well, um, quite honestly, my dream was to make it to the NFL. I think every kid's dream was to make it to the NFL. I didn't know about or learn about the CFL until Ricky Williams got suspended from the NFL to Toronto, I believe, in 2001. So that was the first time I had ever heard about the CFL. Didn't, didn't really know much about it, but, you know, I glanced at a couple of games because I wanted to see what Ricky Williams was going to do up there while he was suspended in the NFL. So, you know, I went through my college career at USF. I think I had, like, 63 catches in four years. You know, maybe eight or 900 yards, and I think maybe four or five touchdowns. You know, st- statistics of someone who would play a full season, one full season, not four. And, um, you know, so that wasn't very enticing to anybody in the NFL um, as far as, you know, free agents and being drafted and whatnot. So, you know, I remember Montreal Alouette having a um, an open tryout at USF. My agent told me about it, and Jim Pop and Brock Sunderland at the time were, were running the front office for Montreal. And I went out there, I did a tryout, and I think it was like we were out there from like 8 or 9 in the morning so about six about six five or six PM that, that evening. I mean it was a long day. I mean from forties to five ten fives to um one on ones for like six hours it felt like. And I, I may I, I may be exaggerating but I really felt like it was that long. I mean we there were there were rounds and rounds of just one on ones. And um, you know, guys were tapping out, guys were tired, they were cramping up, they just sat down and started started watching but I remember myself, maybe two, or, maybe two or three other guys that, you know, we just continued to go. We just continued to rep and, 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 win, and win and, you know, run around, get open and catch the ball. And I remember after after that camp went, you know, they kept making cuts and making cuts and do more one-on-ones. They make cuts and do more one-on-ones until they narrowed it down to the guys that they wanted. And I think they offered maybe two or three of us, you know, uh, contracts on the spot. And I remember... I don't know what the league minimum was at the time back then, but he, Jim Pop um, and Brock offered me a contract on the spot. It was like, we want to offer you a contract for a hundred grand, like two years, fifty thousand. I'm like, oh yeah, sign me up. 
get to go play pro football. I'm gonna make a hundred thousand dollars in two years. I'll take it. <laughs> I was ecstatic, man. But um, I that was that was my that was my my journey to the CFL, and it kind of happened by you know by ten. And I almost didn't go. I almost didn't go, but um, Danielle, my who was, who was my wife now, she was my wife at the time, but we were dating in college, and she was like, you know what, you should go, you should go do the workout. Um, you're gonna regret it if you don't. You're gonna be looking back one day and saying, man, you know what? I regret not going to that workout. Who knows what could have came of it? And I don't want to hear that 20 years down the line. So, you know, she encouraged me to go because I was, I was kind of at a point where I was kind of, um, I was kind of, I was kind of like distraught. I was kind of, I, was, I didn't really want to play football anymore. I didn't know if I wanted to play football anymore. I was I was hurt because I felt like I didn't get the opportunities to perform at the level I knew I, I was capable of performing at in college. You know, with only having six three catches in four years, you know, not really having much enough of an opportunity to go to the NFL. So that was all kind of playing in the back of my mind. I was uh I was mentally out of it as far as you know playing football. And then she she said, you know what, just go do it. And so I did, and that day turned into uh you know. One of the best days of my life. And looking back at it, gave me an opportunity to play pro football for 13 years. Before the um, b- before the tryout itself, SJ had had any other leagues uh, expressed interest in you, whether it had been uh, Arena League or whether it had been uh, well, I guess it was Arena League at the time. Um, <laughs> did any other teams or league express interest in you before the before the tryout? No, not at all. But I mean, if I'm being honest with you, uh, I wouldn't have played arena football i don't think i would have i told myself in college if i had to play arena football i probably wouldn't play and that's no disrespect to anybody who played the game the arena football game because there are a lot of talented people who came through that league and made it to the cfl and, and had stellar careers up there so i'm not knocking anybody that played it but i just knew that arena football wasn't going to be for me okay and so but to answer your question no no arena teams no nfl europe at the time um, just that open tryout for Montreal was, at my college. It was, it, it was CFL or bust at that point, right? <laughs> at that point, yeah. yeah. So when you got to the when you you first got you got to your first training camp in uh, in Canada. Actually, actually, I, I, got, I got a question before we get to that. I, I asked you. So you get your you you're offered the contract. At that time, I'm guessing you may have not have had an agent. Correct me if I'm wrong. I did but have an agent. You I did? did have an agent. You did not. I did. Oh, you I did. did? Okay. Have an agent at that time. Okay. Yeah, I did. Right. So my agent was the one that told me about the camp. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Even better. Okay. So when you were offered the contract, what was the first thing that, that you're, because obviously you were very hype. Obviously you're going to get paid to play professional football, $100,000 over two years. Well, did your agent give you any uh, any words of encouragement? Did he? What's the first thing that he said to you when you mentioned that you, that you know when it was mentioned that you were offered that contract? Um, you know, honestly, I don't remember because he wasn't there. Right. Because he told me about the about the, the the tryout, and I ended up calling him that night or the next day to tell him you know how it went and that they offered me a contract on the spot. And um, but. I think the first thing he said, you know, might have been congratulations. I don't really think he gave me any words of encouragement or anything, but I think it was, um, I do remember speaking to Brock Sunderland on the phone, though, mm-hmm. on, on my way up to training camp. Well, I, I kind of fast forwarded 
because it's the only thing I really remember about that about that time. Sure. Um, but I remember talking to Brock Sunderland on the phone, and he's giving me, you know, you know, the rundown about how things go for training camp and you know practice squad and making a team. And I'm like, hey, yeah, I'm not. I have no intentions on being on practice squad. I'm coming to play. <laughs> and so it's funny. It's funny because I go up there and I spent on practice squad for like two and a half years. You know, so that's that's why I think I remember that the most. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. I said, so so. Um, when did when did you end up signing the contract? Almost was it a couple of days later? Because I I would imagine the team said to you, you have an X period of time that this offer is available to you if you want to to take advantage of it, right? Yeah, it was something like that. I can't remember, you know, the the exact details in relation to that. Yeah. Um. Exactly, but I know it was relatively you know soon that I signed it. It wasn't something I sat on for long because mm-hmm. I believe the tryout for the CFL may have been. I think in like early May. Oh boy! Okay. Or late April. Because, yeah. Yeah. Right because before it camp. was like, you know, around draft time and NFL draft time is coming up. And excuse me, we just did our pro days maybe like in maybe a couple weeks before. Okay. And so we were, you know, basically it was it was pretty much right before training camp, maybe two or three weeks before training camp. Okay. Okay. So you're obviously now we're we're heading into camp as Cliff was starting before. Uh, one question I wanted to ask you because I couldn't find it while looking it up because you know as as we've seen you know for many people in, not you know all CFL players usually but you know the, the stars themselves usually start off on their on their a rookie team as a different uniform number. Did you always have nineteen or did you were you assigned another number in training camp? I believe I had another number in training camp. Okay. I believe I had another number in training camp. I don't remember what number it was, but I, I remember switching it to 19 earlier on. I, but it happened before the first game. I, I, I don't remember, though. Okay. I would imagine it had to, would have been after the, the, the final cuts because that's usually when the, the numbers open up. So once you found out you made the team, I would imagine that's – I'm guessing that's when you would have chosen number 19. Well, I I remember wearing 19 in preseason though. Okay. I want to say I did. I I, I want to say I did. I want to say I did, but I, you know it's vague right now. I don't recall okay. like specific. Sure. Well, if I can if I can find out find it up for you, SJ, I'll make sure I let you know. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Now. Talk to us about coming up to Canada for the first time. Have you ever been? To, had you ever been to Canada before you uh, you came up for your training camp in Montreal? Never. And did you have any inkling of what to expect when you got up there? What uh, was it? I imagine there might have been a bit of a culture shock, but uh, what do you remember from that uh, first voyage up to Canada? It was definitely a culture shock for me, especially coming to Montreal where they speak French. That was new for me. That was different. Um. My first year, the first thing I remember from coming up was coming up, training camp started in June, I believe, the first week of June. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe the second, third, or fourth day of camp, I think I walk outside, it's like 45 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm freezing. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, 45 degrees in June? Like, I've never seen this before. Like, from where I'm from? we barely get 45 in December, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like you were lucky to get that. So to get 45 degrees in June was, 
was like mind blowing to me. That's one thing I remember from camp, um, my first year. And then I remember, I think it was, it was either my first or second year we were having camp, and I remember, you know, having a good camp and doing maybe maybe not doing as well as I wanted to, but I was doing well enough to, you know, make a make a make a make a make a name for myself or make a, make a case for myself to make the team. And um, I remember bruising my heel. And I mean, I'm 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 going, I'm going, I'm going, and I'm basically walking on my tippy toes on my right foot because I can't put my heel on the ground. Every time my heel touches the ground, I'm in, I'm in excruciating pain. But I, I was always told like if 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 you get hurt and you can't practice, you're going home. And so I remember like going through practice, and I remember Jim Pop came up and walked up to me. He's like, "Hey, are you okay? Are you hurting?" I'm like, yeah, man, I got a heel issue, but I'm I'm, I'm okay. So, like, hey, man, you know, you can take the rest of the day off and just, you know, you know, take the day and and chill, and I and I, I would, would get you back in the rotation tomorrow. I'm like, no, that's all good. I'm 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 okay. I can I can finish. And so, you know, I don't know if that helped my case or helped me out, but you know, maybe it did. But I ended up finishing practice, and I I don't I don't I never got cut. So, um, that that worked out for me in my favor. That, yeah, that's and by the way, I just looked it up here, SJ. So that first year for camp for you in '07, uh, it was over in Saint Jean sur Richelieu. Obviously, it's, it's a smaller, it's a smaller town, you know. Obviously, and you're you're used to, I, I would imagine, it's that obviously the weather in Florida and stuff like that. So you didn't start off in Montreal in camp. You started off in this, this small Quebec town outside of uh, outside of Montreal. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So. Yeah. Yeah, so you know, so I remember I remember taking a trip downtown with the team. I think we were going to the field to check the field out or physicals or something like that. And um, you know, he gave guys the option to get back to St. John like by themselves. And you know, we got dropped off and dumped on the metro. And I'm like, I'm I'm lost. Like I I've, I've never seen anything like this before. Like everything is so big, everything is so open. Like you got underground metro system public transportation on the streets downtown. I'm like, I don't know. I, I was, I was lost. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to turn. I'm just following the guys that I was with. Cause that's all that's the only thing I can do. But, um, yeah, man, I, I remember being intimidated by the city cause it was just so big to me. Mm-hmm. Cliff. Yeah, no, they, I mean, let's, I, I think you echo a lot of the statements that a lot of players have made that we've spoken to is just, once you try to take in the city, like you don't think of it as big necessarily compared to other major cities in the United States, but I mean, Montreal itself, it holds its own as far as population, as well as just the infrastructure, everything about the city. It does have a big city feel to it. It definitely does until you live, until you live there for a while. And then you start to realize how small the community is for real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, Obviously, I'm guessing the temperature was a big reason why you never decided to live here year-round. <laughs> well, that too, and I, I, I kind of, you know, I had a son when I left before I came to Canada. Mm-hmm. My son was born, and um, I didn't, I didn't want to raise him in Canada. I wanted him to be able to do sports in school in the U.S. Cause I knew, I just knew that, I just knew it was different, and it wasn't the same, you know. So I wanted to give him the opportunity to, you know being sports in school down here in, in Florida, which is where I grew up. I just kind of wanted that for him. Sure. I didn't know how long I was going to be up there because initially my plan was when I first went to the – and this is going back to the question that somebody asked me earlier. I wasn't sure who it was, but they said, what did your agent tell you? 
my agent was like, um, you know, you go to the CFL, you're going to be, uh, you know, preferred, you know, free agent if you go to the NFL. So you probably won't get drafted or picked up. Um, it's possible, but there's no guarantees. But if you go to the CFL, you know, for a year or two, get you some film, and you could possibly get back down into the NFL. So that was my goal. My goal was to try to make it to the NFL and, you know, only be there for a year or two. So me taking my family when I went wasn't really in the plans early on, you know. Mm-hmm. That didn't really become a thought process for us until later in my career. Sure. What was it, what, what was it like getting, yeah, I've seen your first training camp, but what was it like getting used to the waggle? Obviously you had some idea when you went to the tryout, but how how, as a football player, was it easy to get used to the waggle, or were there other parts of the game that you had to get used to first? Well, for me, considering I had to waggle every play, yeah, that was something that was just a part of my everyday, you know, development within the CFL. So I got adjusted quickly, but it took me a while to kind of understand how to use my waggle to my advantage. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay, that makes sense. And. Uh, and as far as like the the bigger field and uh, longer field, I mean, was that just a, more of a challenge for you, or was it something that you just made work for you? Like, what what was your thoughts when you saw how big the field was compared to, say, an NFL's regulation size field? Well, from from you know from the field we played on in college in the NFL field, being fifty, I think fifty two in in a, in a third of yards or something like that, as opposed to playing on sixty five for a receiver, it's like, hey. I got a lot of space out here, <laughs> you know, so I get, you know, and the different, the difference is, you know, down South, the windows are tighter because the dimensions are smaller. So there aren't, you know, the windows aren't as big, you know, the quarterbacks can, you know, kind of anticipate a little bit sooner, you know, um, down South and then up, then up top because the field's just so big. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, it takes quarterbacks a while to coming up too to adjust to the waggle and throwing to guys with a running start, you know? So, it was all cool though, man. Like I, I you know, I, I had I had a blast doing it, and uh, but getting acclimated, you know, it took time just to learn how to be advantageous with my wagon. Okay. And I imagine that anybody that you speak to that is perhaps thinking about a career in the CFL, that's probably one of the things you mentioned right away is that this is something you're going to have to get used to. Absolutely. I mean, it's different. And if you never played it, if you never done it before, it'll take some time getting used to it. But you know. To me, it's one of the, you know, it's not how I grew up playing football, but I, I grew I grew to love it. You know, it just, it just it made the game fun. All right. So now you finally make the team. You finally make it with the Alouettes, and your career gets underway. And you, you come in just at the right time, I think, because that was just about the start of, I guess, the, the renaissance, if you will, for the Alouettes. Because the Alouettes had success for many years before, but then kind of went through a bit of a lull. Even though they went to the Grey Cup, but they end up losing it. But now there's a, a bit of a new change in place with Jim Pop as a head coach, eventually leading into Mark Tressman becoming head coach. Uh, talk to us about that change and what you saw with the the teammates that were surrounding you. Like, what kind of changes did you see making happen for this to be eventually becoming a Grey Cup winning team? Well, when I, my first year was 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 completely different from the the next five years while I was there with Mark Tressman. So my first year, Jim Pott was the coach. We made it to the playoffs, but we lost to Winnipeg four times in a row that year, including the playoff game on the mm-hmm. road. So the next year, there was a lot of turnaround. A lot of turnaround. There were, you know, new guys, new receivers coming in, 
We added, you know, they took Avon from the defensive side of the ball and made him a running back primarily because Avon was kind of bouncing back and forth at the time. He became the guy. Jamal Richardson came over. Elijah Thurman came over from Saskatchewan. Those guys were there with Ben Calhoun and Kerry Watkins. So, you know, there was a lot of turnover from that from that when Tressman came in. Um, so, you know, the coaching styles were different. I really don't remember much of how Pop coached, you know, my 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 rookie year because I was it was all kind of a blur from that perspective because I was trying to take in so much. But um, I remember when Tressman got there that it was different. You know, it felt like uh, a program. It felt like. So this is how we're going to do it. If you're not going to do it, we'll see you later. Mm-hmm. Get with the program or get lost. Yeah. You know, not to say anything bad about Jim Pop because Jim Pop was a great coach. I love, you know, when Pop coached our team. But Pop was more of a player coach. He was more, you know, connected to the players. Excuse me, a little more laid back, you know, not so not so hard-pressed kind of a, you know, this is this is kind of how we're, we're going to do it. We're not, we're not, it's not, there's no, no right or wrong way to do it. As long as we're getting it done, you know that's kind of how Pop was. Mm-hmm. Let's just let's just find a way to win. Trustman got there; it was almost like we're going to establish some order. We're going to weed out the weak. This is how we're going to play our game, and everything was so scientific. Everything was so detailed. Everything was so masterful, if I can say that. Mm-hmm. You know, when it came to how, you know, the approach was taught to us, it was just different. And I think everybody, everybody bought in, everybody was, everybody bought in. And it was just a beautiful thing to be a part of because coming from our first year, you know, we were, we weren't bad, but we weren't good. But you could tell the difference from year one, as opposed to year two through six for me in the, in the, in the teams in Montreal. It was a, it was a matter of. As I'm sure as everybody remembers, win the day. Yes, sir. And everything matters. That's true. That's true. Talk to us about, uh, as you mentioned, you mentioned a, a murderer's row of incredible receivers, uh, along with yourself, uh, Jamel Richardson, Kerry Watkins, Ben Cahoon. What was it that made that, like, what do you think was the, the one element that really stood out when it came to, to like all four of you guys being in the lineup? Like what made that such an elite group? Competition. If I'm being honest, completely honest, we were all competitive with one another. We all held each other to a high standard. Um, we were all uh, accountable for for our own actions, but not just our own actions. We were accountable for, for each other. And we held each other to that standard. And, to, um, and, and that, that was just part of our, our DNA. That that pushed our competitiveness because we all wanted to be the guy. You know, we weren't all the guy. We were all the guy, but at different points, you know, in our careers. But we all were striving to get there. And, um, you know, Jamel Richardson really, really showed me a lot, man. He took me under his wing and showed, showed me, showed me, you know, how to how to play the game in Canada for him. And so I owe him, I owe him a lot. I tell him every time I talk to him, I appreciate him so much for that because. Well, not everybody would have took the opportunity to just to teach, you know, considering that, you know, at the end of the day, we're all fighting for jobs and, and, and opportunities to continue playing. And so, you know, for him to take that time out to, you know, try to make me better and help me be better, that meant a lot to me. Mm. Especially I, I, considering that we were the same kind of receiver fighting for the same position, essentially. 
No, it's true. You guys were built the same. I, I mean, like, like whenever I see you guys side by side, like, I mean, you got you guys could have practically passed for twins at times. Just uh, your your playing style and just you know your overall physical look and everything like that. Like, I mean, you like I said, it was just so dangerous to see the both of you on the field at the same time. Man, that was some of the best time of my life, man, playing football. <laughs> and outside of my twenty, I played with some good groups, some good groups of guys. My group in Toronto, my last all three years in Toronto. I had a blast with those guys playing receiver, and those are some of the best times I had. But that 2009, 10, and 11 group of receivers that I played with in Montreal, that was that was a special group, man. That was a special group. I think it also shows too, SJ, that when you know people think of uh, wide receivers, it, it's you know it's always about them, them, them. You're just totally flipping it, you know, flipping that on its head because. In order to win, you need to be a team. You need to back each other up. Even though, as you said, you're competing for the same job, you're there to help your team win. And I love hearing how players are able to explain that there's more, that that when it comes to a team, you need to make sure that you have the camaraderie and you have to have the locker room all together in order to, to win and get to the Grey Cup. That's championship DNA, one-on-one. You know, you got to establish that. It's got to be a brotherhood. It has to be a band of brothers. You got to be, you got to, everybody has to be bought in. And I mean, the biggest thing that Tressman taught us, one of the biggest things that Tressman taught me was, you know, even if you are the number one receiver on the league, in the league or the number one receiver on this team, you got to give it up just like they give it up. And I'm saying they as in the other four receivers that are on the field playing with you. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, for example, for Jay Rich to come wide open on that big route underneath, somebody has to be in the slot to clear out the safety and haul ass to the middle of the field to take the safety with him. Or Jay Rich doesn't come underneath that, come underneath wide open under there. So, you know, you got to give it up for your teammates. You, you and, and you and you have to be, be unselfish in regards to, you know, when it's not your chance to get the ball, do you run your route just as hard as when you are getting the ball? Because if you're not, you're affecting the man next to you that is about to get the ball. And so that type of that type of selfish mentality would not it wouldn't allow our offense to flourish the way that it did and so for the the guys like watching a guy like Ben Calhoun and Kerry Watkins and Jamel Richardson watching those guys you know illustrate and, and and architect like their game the way that they did and having the success that they had in 2008 and 9 before I became really a part of everything watching how unselfish they were made it easy for a guy like me to come in and follow suit and be able to pass that same energy along to the guys that came behind me and that were coming up with me when I was an older player. It made it easy for me to be able to validate that because I saw I worked with some of the best receivers the league had ever seen. Mm-hmm. And so you couldn't tell me that there was anybody better than the guys that I came up playing with, with Ben Calhoun and Jay Rich and, and K.Y. There, wasn't, there weren't too many other guys in the league that were on the level with the exception of, you know, you know uh, G. Roy, Milt, Allen Bruce, you know, guys like that, you know, but, you know, I played with some of the best. So for those guys to be able to be unselfish and have the success that they had, there was no reason or no way that I could come in and think that I was going to change that or be make it different when when guys of, those, of that caliber had come in and had, you know, similar success. Mm. So it made it easy. So, I mean, just to be able to line up with, uh, like, all that talent that you met, you mentioned and then you put yourself in there as well, I mean, like – I mean, you're talking about the best of the best right there. I mean, 
you said it yourself. I mean, like, like I look back at that that time period, the uh, 2009, 2010, 2011, and like, my God, like the, that those are some straight up guys. Like those are guys that just balled right out. And I mean, to be a, a part of that, and, and just had to be a, such a tremendous fraternity. Oh yeah, it was man, and it, it it meant something to be a part of that group. You know, whether we were losing or whether we were winning, we played with the same intensity. You know, I, 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 as a receiver group, our motto was always. There's no quitting us. Like if we if we're getting waxed in the fourth quarter and and we got to play two minute drill and we know we can't win, we still we're still gonna go line up and give you everything we are gonna give you just like we gave it to you in the first quarter when the game first started. And that was one thing that I, I loved about our group. See, like we never we never quit. Hey, for your for your first touchdown that you had in 08 versus Edmonton, do you still did do, do, do you do you still have that game ball? Oh yes, for sure. <laughs> I still got it right now. It's upstairs in the man cave. There you go. I mean that. Yeah, that you you, you can't let something like that disappear. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and I, and I, I never want to see something like that on eBay either. <laughs> no, no. Marcus Brady threw me that ball. That's when I had my jersey was too big and I had it tied up in the back with like a little rat tail hanging out. <laughs> oh, I, you know, I we may have to go back and look at that footage, eh, yeah, Cliff? <laughs> oh, oh my God! Yeah, yeah. You got me yeah, thinking about yeah. that. My sleeve, my my sleeves are taped up. Behind, like behind my my tricep, and the back is taped up, and it's got like a little rat tail. I had it flipped under, but it came out during the game, so you'll be able to see like a little rat tail sticking out back there. My now, was, was that too big? How, how did that happen? I mean, normally, like uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't you want the the jersey to be just like right up against you as tight as possible? Yeah, yeah, but see, at the time, you know, I was. I wasn't the guy, so they didn't really have my – I didn't play often. So they didn't really have, like, my jersey kind of, you know, tailored to me. It wasn't, like, cut my, from my body. It was just a 19 jersey. And okay. so I just had to put it on. I, as a matter of fact, I think the 19 belonged to a lineman. Somebody else did have 19 when I got there, so I didn't have another number. He got cut in training camp, but then I got 19. Just validated that for you. Okay. He was a Canadian guy, but I can't remember his name. Um, and so he got cut and then I got 19 after him. Okay. Okay. But, um, yeah, so that's how that went. Oh yeah. Now we got to definitely go take a look at it. I'm sure it's gotta be on YouTube somewhere. We oh, gotta yeah, find it's gotta that, be somewhere. That, that footage. It's gotta be somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> hey, SJ, now obviously, you know, you're with the owls seven through nine. You kind of had an opportunity for the jets. Now at that time, and that's the reason why I'm asking is that, were were you a free agent at that time when you signed the futures contract with the Jets, or were you in your option year? I was going into my option year. Okay. I was going into my option year, which is why I was obligated to come back to Montreal when I left, when I got released from um, the Jets. Okay. I was obligated to go back to Montreal because I was going to back to fulfill the second year of my option. Okay. And so after that year, I became a free agent, which was 2010, which is when I had my breakout season. I think I had like that was that Saskatchewan mm-hmm. uh, one-handed catch season. Yes, sir. <laughs> oh, oh. Yeah. Um, what was what was your what was your thought? Obviously, I'm, I'm sure you in uh, you enjoyed the time being signing a futures contract and being with the Jets and going through that experience. Um, any hesitation at all? to come back to Montreal after you you had been released? 
Um, no, not at all. I mean, if I'm being honest, I mean, I, I, I wanted to make it, make it with the Jets. But I remember, you know, going through that process, and I learned a lot from those guys um, that were there in that locker room. You know, I got to be around some, some, some great players and kind of see, you know, how they approach the game and, you know, how they, how they view things and got to compete against some of those guys and, and, and practice a couple times. So it was a good experience for me. You know, I look at it as a blessing in disguise, too, because I was at that time where I wasn't really getting money and I, wasn't, I didn't have a contract where I got paid to find a bonus in the CSL where I had money in the offseason. So it was kind of like a paid off season for me, you know, in a crazy kind of way. It was a, it was a paid off season, and I, I was thankful for that. But um, I could kind of feel the vibe when I was there that it wasn't really an opportunity best, you know, best suited for me. You know, I remember going, I remember looking at the roster. I go down there, I sign, and I think right after that they bring in, I think Braylon Edwards or somebody that they had brought in and they brought in a couple other guys. So they weren't really big on receivers. They were, you know, a heavy run team with Ladanian Thomason and Sean Green. So they weren't really throwing the ball like that. You know, the receivers were going to block and, you know, do, do dirty work most of the game. Mm-hmm. They weren't throwing the ball with Mark Sanchez, you know? Yeah. So um, I remember like, okay, how am I going to make this team? And there weren't really, there weren't really very many receiver positions available. Um, after Brandon Edwards signed, you know, that, that kind of, and then they brought Jericho Cotri in too. So that kind of made it like, okay, those are two guys that I know are going to play. And it wasn't looking good as far as a, a position for a receiver. Um, so I go to the special team coach. I think his name was Hoffman or something like that. And um, I asked him, I'm like, man, I'm trying to make this roster. Like, I need, I need, a, I need an opportunity on special team to show what I can do. And he's like, well, look, this is what I got for you. I mean, typically the, the positions I have available on special teams are typically linebacker body types, you know, guys 240, 250. But, you know, yeah, I'll give you a chance. That's what he told me. I'm like, oh, shoot. I mean, it's, it, I'm, I'm, I'm down for the grind. I'm down for the, you know, for the, for the hustle and trying to, you know, prove myself. But it's not looking likely, you know. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of feeling like, man, you know what? This ain't for me, man. I'm, I'm, I hope I get released before the CFL season starts so that I can play a full season up there. And, you know, lo and behold, I, I got released before, before the season started, like a week before training camp. And uh, I, was, I felt so relieved because I just felt like it wasn't the right situation for me at the time uh, when, I was, when I was with the Jets. So. so it's just a simple matter of maybe the grass isn't necessarily greener on the other side. You – I mean, the only thing green on the other side is the money that they make, man. I mean, and the fact that, you know, you know, the contracts are, you know, are life-changing contracts as opposed to the contracts in the CFL. You know, they're not – you can't you, you can't play – you can play 10, 15 years in the CFL and, you know, have to come home and find a job or come home and start a business or do something like that. You play 10, 15 years in the NFL, you never got to work again. You know? True. Mm-hmm. This is true. But – Thankfully, you did come back to Montreal in 2010 because, as you said, that was your breakout year. That was where the world got to know who S.J. Green truly was. And and in Absolutely. week one. Week one, yeah. S.J. Oh, my God. I remember yeah, specifically man. where I was for that game. I was in, uh, I was in P- uh, Prince Edward Island for, on vacation watching the Alouettes play on Canada Day. And there's the catch. 
the catch that is probably one of the best, if not the best, catch in CFL history. It was just the game itself, because you guys had just gone against them in the Grey Cup. It's a matchup. Canada Day, you know, the game was absolutely bonkers, SJ. Yeah, man, it was it was an exciting game. I'll tell you that. But, you know, even before we get to the game, that offseason, well, you know, I put in so much work that offseason before I left to go to the Jets. And then I think I had maybe like two weeks before camp. Like, my my, my, uh, my father-in-law is from Fort Lauderdale. We were down, I was down there training with him before the season, mm-hmm. before camp, trying to get ready for camp. And I tell you, man, we practiced that catch. Well, not that particular catch, but we practiced one-handed catches. I mean, at least three times a week after after I finished my workout. And he just, he just ripped off 100 balls to me or 80 balls. And, you know, I'd catch the ball and fall on the, on the sideline, tippy-toe, and I would catch it. I would catch it. We worked all different angles, just one-hand catches. And um, I remember, man, I'm like, damn, man, we, after that game and I made that catch, I called Pop, like, hey, man, man, we, we, we prepared for this moment. Like, I remember making that call, like, like and that was, that was kind of like the first moment for me where I was like, man, if you put the work in, like, it really does come into, come into play. If you just, you just got to do it. And so that kind of, that was the turning moment for me in my career um, where I just felt like, you know what, you got to put the work in and the, and the, and the rest will come. And I will say, like, you, you talk about just how sensational that catch was, just everything about it, especially just with all the implications behind it. Because, again, Montreal had to you, – you had to make that two-point convert in order to keep going and playing in overtime. I, I mean, and it almost looked like it wasn't going to happen. But just what was going through your head that moment when AC chucked the ball to you and you, you knew you had to catch that. But what was going through your head at that moment? Well, um, it was, I mean, it was a high-intensity high, high intensity moment, you know, games on the line, you know, but if I'm being honest, that, that training camp, you know, we prepared for that. We knew it was going to be a dogfight week one of the season after, after winning the game in the Great Cup the way that we won it in 2009. So I knew that it was going to be, we knew that it was going to be a dogfight. Um, but, you know, the play before that, we called, it was something, it was like, you know, spread right, uh, X Cardinal Y spacing Z fade. I'll never forget it. So I throw the ball. Uh, we run the play, and I catch the touchdown on Donovan, Donovan, Donovan Anderson, some, Simpson, Donovan something. Alexander uh, Donovan, something like uh, that. Donovan, Donovan Alexander. Alexander. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yes. And so we catch the ball and score a touchdown, but we're down by two. Man, we go back to the huddle, and AC calls spread right. X Cardinal, Y Space, and Z Fade. We call it the exact same play. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, how am I going to run this route this time? How am I going to do it? Am I going to. So I remember going up to Donovan. I kind of try to try to shake him a little bit, but I, I kind of stumble. I end up spinning inside of him, and he falls. I just remember looking up and seeing the ball floating in the air. And I just ran until I, till I felt like I needed to jump, and I'm like, man, I hope I land in bounds. <laughs> and, um, Man, I, I just remember the, I just remember hearing the crowd go go silent. I could I could hear a pin. I, could, I felt like I felt like I could hear a pin drop. <laughs> I remember I, I hear I hear players saying incomplete. He was out. He was out. And I remember them going to review, and it was like, man, that was that was a surreal moment. But um, the biggest thing I remember was like, man, I don't know how I'm gonna run this route two times in a row. <laughs> but we, we we got it done. 
Hey, thank you know what? Sure they, did. Yeah, th- thank goodness for the CFL bringing in replay in tw- in two thousand six because I can only imagine what you were thinking on the sideline, waiting for the uh, for the result from uh, from the command center. Man, I was hoping my feet, knees. I was hoping something on my lower extremity hit, you know, inbounds because it was it was a big moment, you know. And, if it's if, it, if, it, if it's not if it's not good, the game is over. Mm-hmm. And, and thankfully, so, you just need one foot inbounds too. Something inbounds. So. <laughs> yeah, but luckily I got one elbow inbounds. <laughs> exactly. I, I tell you what, Cliff. You know, considering that we now know what the call was for that particular play. I think we need to make a T-shirt. <laughs> well, I, I mean, SJ, I mean, that, that image of you making that catch, oh. I mean, that has been made into a T-shirt, uh, mm-hmm. a hat even, thanks mm-hmm. to you, uh, with New Era. Uh, and even, and this is the one that I'm sure still blows your mind, someone actually has that image tattooed on their body. Yeah, man, I, so much, that inspired me too, because I, mean, I feel like I need to get it myself. I, I, I mean, like, Gosh, I mean, like, how, how crazy is that to think that someone saw that image of you and decided to put it on their body? I mean, that, I mean, I, I, I can't think of a bigger compliment to what that play means, not just to Alouette's fans, but to yourself as well. No, man, that was humbling, man. I actually got to meet him when I came up to announce uh, my official retirement last year. I got to meet the guy that had the tattoo, so that was cool, too. We got to take a picture, and I got to find a jersey for him, so that was cool. Did he ask you to sign the tattoo as well so that he can go get it inked? Oh, uh, you know, I don't know. I didn't sign the tattoo, but he already kind of, I think he had that on there already. I'm not oh. sure, but I, I, don't, I don't remember. But no, he didn't ask me to sign that. Okay. No, just because I've, 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 okay, because I know that uh, uh, there's a couple other athletes uh, have, uh, someone had gotten the tattoo of them and then they went and found that same guy afterwards, asked if he could sign it just so they can go get that tatted on afterwards. So I was just curious if uh, this guy, Ask for the autograph so they can do that way, not just have the image of you, but also your signature as well. Yeah, that would have been pretty dope. Yeah. But no, we didn't go that far. We didn't go that far. Uh, well, now you're going to have to come back to Montreal and find this guy again. That's all there is to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he'll go get the signature and I'll go get the tattoo. There you go. There you go. There you go. <laughs> All right. Now, 2010, as we talked about, was your breakup moment, not just for that incredible catch in Saskatchewan, but I mean, to play. Uh, you know, championship football again, mm-hmm. with more or less the same group of guys again. Uh, what was the mindset as far as going into the idea? Like, can we repeat as Grey Cup champions? What 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 go, what goes into that thinking, and what kind of work has to be done in order to make something like that happen? I mean, it kind of goes back to the mentality I was telling you about in regards to you know the receiver group. That wasn't just the mentality with our group. That was kind of the mentality with every group. You know, everybody felt, everybody had a sense of selflessness, you know, and commitment and buy-in to, you know, the mantra, which was win the day and everything matters. Um, I think that had a lot to do with, you know, our mindset and our, and our, and our drive, you know, those, those two years. And, you know, and quite honestly, you know, 2011, we felt like we got, like we sold ourselves short in the championship in 2012. You know, we felt like we had a chance to really, you know, kind of have a dynasty for real, you know, with those years that from 2009 or 2008 to 2012. And we felt like we should have went to five or six straight great cups. And mm-hmm. for me, I mean, that's, that's kind of how we felt. We, we realistically, we had a chance in 2011 and 12. We just, you know, I just think it was at that time in 11 and 12 where we kind of, uh, 
I think the I think the process kind of got kind of got redundant to us, and uh, we started to lose focus in certain areas. Hmm. No, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, but let's go back to the 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 2010 Grey Cup. Uh, once again, it's Montreal versus Saskatchewan, round two, so to speak. Or actually, I guess it would be round three because I I remember that year. Yes, you had the amazing Canada Day game, and then when the Riders came to Montreal and played, and you guys were playing in those incredible 1970 retro jerseys, oh, that yeah. was an amazing game as yeah. well. So, I mean, yeah. two monumental games, and then the rubber match, if you will, ends up being the Grey Cup, a rematch of the 2009 Grey Cup, which we all know what happened with that. But the Alouettes, they were a little bit disrespected by the league, if if I recall correctly. And uh, you and uh, Jay Rich were not too happy about that. Yeah, we had a lot to say after that game. <laughs> but, you, you, um, sure, you, but you know what's funny? We did. You and Jay Rich had a lot to say after the game, but uh, Matsir Pru and Itzimbule, your teammates on defense, uh, they also had a lot to say as well uh, before the game. I, I mean, there just seemed to be a whole lot of disrespect being shown towards the Alouettes. Would you... Yeah, Would you man, concur with that? Us, they, 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 they put us in the lesser of the two hotels in Edmonton. They put us in a hotel with a broken elevator, so we had to walk flights of stairs with suitcases. So we were really in our feelings from the time we got into Edmonton. We were upset when we got there. So it was just kind of one of those things that kind of, you know, added fuel to the fire, you know. We wanted to repeat. We we, are, we felt like we were the best team. We knew that we had a dominant season. Uh, I think we went 12-6 and six that year. But, um, you know, it was really just, you know, when we got to Edmonton, we did feel disrespected a lot with the, with the hotel situation and having to walk upstairs. And, you know, we feel like, you know, Saskatchewan got the home, the home, time, the home team discount with the, being on the West and having to play in the West and getting a better hotel. And, uh, you know, just Saskatchewan being Saskatchewan, you know, being prized more than us. And we played with that chip on our shoulders and it worked to our advantage. Winning back-to-back Grey Cups, obviously that's an incredible accomplishment, but would you say that particular victory was sweeter than the first one, or is the first one, like, you never forget your first? For me, it was sweeter, because my first one, I only played in that Grey Cup because Andrew Hawkins got hurt. I don't know if you remember, but 2009 was the year that Andrew Hawkins came over with us, and he started to make an impact on the team, the back back nine games of the season. That's right. And so that's that right. was the year that I kind of I kind of split. That was my third year in the CFL, and, and that year, that year, you know, I came in as a starter. Andrew Hawkins came in, and he kind of ended the season as a starter. And in the and in the the championship game against BC in in Montreal, um, he broke his ankle, and so I played in the Great Cup. But I only played special teams. I played not one down offense in that Great Cup. So I contributed. Um, my biggest memory in that game was. Brian Bratton um, was fielding a punt late in the game, and he muffed it. And I was on punt return. And I remember tackling the guy that was about to recover the ball, and I tackled him just in time for one of my teammates to jump on the ball before he did. That's right. That's so, right. Yes, yes, I should have been called for holding of some capacity, but I did my job to help my team win a championship. Nobody knows about that, but I remember I mean, it, it all happened so fast. Yeah, I, I, like, yeah, I definitely remember. Like Etienne Boulay had to—he was the one who ended up recovering the the ball from Montreal. But I—I uh, I, I guess I have to go back and look at that again because I, I don't remember you holding. Like, <laughs> no, I, I, it was, I was kind of falling, and I, I kind of grabbed him as I was falling just so he couldn't give him the ball. And it, it just so happened that um, you know, Etienne got there first. I guess I didn't know who recovered, but I know I, I know I tackled somebody, and I shouldn't have. 
Uh, well, there's no Gibbsy backsies right now, right, folks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, no harm, no foul, SJ. If they don't throw a flag, it's not a penalty. I, I did my part. I, I contributed. So to answer your question, the, the second great cup for me is the best one um, out of the two because, you know, I was able to contribute from an offensive perspective. They were so focused on Jay Rich that year and him, you know, being the number one guy on the team and, you know, K. Watt and Ben Cahoon, the big name guys. You know, I had a, I had a good year that year, but, you know, those were the guys that, you know, had the established, you know, clout in the league. I was up and coming, but, I, you know, I was playing well, but they were the up and coming. I was, I was the, the new guy. So to go into that great cup and, you know, have, you know, comparable stats to Jay Rich who had an MVP performance in that game and got the MVP trophy, you know, you know, to me it speaks volumes and I was able to help my team and contribute in a way that I wanted to contribute um, as a receiver more so than a special teams player. Although, you know, if you're looking at it, they both hold the same weight in some capacity because everybody has to do their job to, you know, attain greatness, but I wanted to do it in a way that I wanted to do it. And that, that was more for me in 2010 than 2009. Do you feel like uh, after winning like those great cups and just getting into that championship mentality, like do you th- you think that this game has had slowed down enough for you for in order for you to become at that point one of the premier players in the league? Absolutely. From 2010 on, that was the year I felt like I should have been an East All Star, but they gave it to Dave Staller because he went over. I think he had just over a thousand yards. I think I had 875, but I had 10 touchdowns. And he had four. Um, so I thought I should have been an East All Star, and I felt slighted. So that offseason kind of motivated me to go, you know, start to elevate my game to another level of just being a good player, but being an all-star player um, on a consistent basis. And, um, you know, with the exception of 2014 and 16, I had all 1,000-yard seasons after that. Um, 16, I tore my ACL, and 14 was the year that uh, I think Deron led the team in receiving in Montreal that year. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, with the exception of those two years, I was able to post thousand-yard seasons and, um, you know, be, you know, a consistent, dominant player. Now, earlier you said, you said that 2010 ended up being your first time as a free agent, right? Was, is that correct? Um, I want to say I was never a free agent. I never allowed myself to get to free agency until my until after the 2019 season. Okay. okay. So 2000, 2010, I was coming up to be a free agent after that year, but it was time for me to renew my contract before the before the um, free agent date expired. Okay. Okay. And, and that's what I want to. That's what I want to ask you about. I, and I, I should have clarified. Not necessarily a free agent, but you were your contract was up. This was really was the yeah. first time that you were going through a contract negotiation, right? As a player. Yes, and at that time, I believe I, I believe I was representing myself at that time. I was negotiating my own contract at that time. Okay. How, at, how, that, at that point, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, how, how was the process itself? I, you know, obviously, we're not asking for specifics. That's, I'm leaving that up to you But when it comes monetarily. But what, how, can you explain the process for somebody? And, and I said, this is your first time going through a negotiation. How, in your opinion— how did that process go? Um, it was it was different. Um, I won't sit here and lie to you and say it was a smooth process. Like there was never a point where there was bad energy 
because I was talking to Jim Pop directly, and at, and by this point in 2011, we had developed a pretty good relationship because I remember going in Jim Pop's office in 2007, eight, and nine, like, hey Jim, like, bro, why why am I not playing? And, you know, he would sit me down and he would teach me, you know, and explain to me why I wasn't playing. It was a numbers game, Canadians versus. Americans and these guys are getting paid. So we got to get our money's worth, so to speak. And, you know, I learned the game from that perspective and that enabled me to feel comfortable enough to negotiate on my own behalf and, you know, looking up contracts and, you know, doing my own research. I just felt more comfortable doing that, knowing that somebody couldn't just tell me what they wanted to tell me. I could, you know, they had to tell me based, you know, based on my own knowledge and education on what was transpiring. So that was, you know, the, the focus for me is just know, knowing, knowing what I, knowing the the unknown throughout that process. But to go through it is different because, you know, you, you have these talks with, you know, the general manager and uh, his scouting department or his, his his front office team, and you know they tell you things that you might not want to hear, or you might not be prepared to hear about yourself, so that they don't have to pay you what you're asking for, you know. So. That was different, but, you know, you learn to compartmentalize business and, you know, football. You know, football can't be a part of the business, but they go hand-in-hand if it makes sense. So that was difficult to be able to, you know, discern the two and differentiate, differentiate the two and, you know, separate the two. But it was something that um, I felt been, had benefited me, you know, over, you know, the course of my life and just, you know, learning different things and doing different things in life. Um, going through that process taught me a lot, so... Um, it was fun and educational at the same time. So when they when they say you know football is a great game but a lousy business, that's pretty much what they're talking about. Oh yeah, because it gets personal, man. You know they they I mean they tell you things. Uh, well, you know you only you want you want in the top five you know receiving this year, so why should I pay you top five money <laughs> or type things? You know well you know they. I'm not saying they said this, but you you may not you don't block as well as some of these guys that are getting paid, or you don't like to put, give effort in the in the run game. You know, why do you get to get paid this much? So I'm not saying those are things that they said to me. I'm just giving you examples of right. Yeah, man. Anywhere they can cut corners to you know save a buck, they're gonna do it. So wow, and that, that's that, that's got that's got to feel counterproductive, considering especially when you're like the coach is the GM as well, because he sees the work that you're putting in, but at the same time. He's got to look at things from a business perspective. And it's like, well, I can only pay you X exactly. number of dollars. So it's, uh, man, exactly. it, I, I don't think anyone envies being in that position and being in your position as well, trying to, as you said, negotiate against someone that you work with. But at the same time, he's the one who signs your paycheck, so to speak. Yeah. and then, But, you know, one thing Jim Pop taught me, and I was able to use this to my advantage at times, um, you know, you don't always get paid based on production. Because you know, I, you know, I had my best season of my career in Toronto and and, and paid and, and signed a contract less than what I got paid the year I, I had the, the good year, you know. But um, it taught me that I lost my train of thought. What I was going to say, it was going to be a good line too. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sorry, guys, but um, it's okay. T- talk yeah. about con- if you're talking about. Con- oh, oh, I, I I remember. Okay. Basically, um, Pop said. You know, you don't you don't always pay for you know you're not always paying a guy what he's worth. You're paying you're paying for you you, you get paid based on the fact that you like who else do you pay, or who else who, 
like who else is available? Do you, you get, somebody's got to get that money. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, well, you may not be worth this much, but that's what the, that's what the position is demanding. And if we don't sign you for this amount, you're not going to get a player of my caliber to play for a lesser amount. So it kind of works in your favor at times too. So it's just, you know, business is business. How, and, 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 and let me tell you, business, especially for wide receivers nowadays, I, I, you you got to be looking at the guys getting paid like $300,000 a year as a wide receiver. And you, you, I'm sure you must be wondering, man, why wasn't I playing like this year as opposed to like back in, back in the day? Well, I mean, I mean, I can say that, but I mean, the money I made when I was playing, I mean, nobody was making that money. You know, I signed a contract to be the highest paid player, a non-quarterback player. When I when I when I when I negotiated my own deal in 2014 or 15, 15, mm-hmm. and I was you know I was making 250 a year for three years in a row, and um, you know I I'm proud of that because you know guys probably wouldn't be there if we if myself and guys like a Darius Bowman weren't you know setting the bar to make 265 thousand you know the following year so you know you got to you got to you got to up up the game. You know, and um, that's kind of what got. That's kind of what happened to me in 2019 when Speedy Banks won the MVP. You know, um, the market changed. Mm-hmm. I think he was the MVP, and he signed for an amount of money that you know wasn't wasn't really comparable to what the market was demanding. Mm-hmm. And so, being mm-hmm. being a 1500 yard receiver with 15 touchdowns and an MOP, you know, signing for what he signed for, the market kind of flipped a little bit, and um. I got caught in the whirlwind. Uh, I, I got to ask, I know you're talking about contracts. You know, we know you're, you're extended in, in 13. Yeah, yeah. That must have been different, by the way. Did they come to you in 2013 to to sign an extension, or did uh, you, well, go, you go to well, them? Um, it, was kind of, it was kind of a mutual thing, but they more so came to me. It was kind of a, you know, you kind of work the contract to make it work for the team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you kind of get more, you know, you do, you do a bonus. But they had changed the bonus from a from a bonus to a signing bonus to give you more money in your pocket up front. Right. You know, kind of help help them on the cap. So that was kind of um kind of what it was. But it kept me on the contract and it kept money in my pocket. And you know, that's that that again was what helped me learn the numbers game in the CFL is, you know, working those contracts and being introduced to those type of legalities mm-hmm. that were taking place. Sure. Um, I, I, I'm just going to encompass this in one question here, SJ. Out of all the contracts that you negotiated, what it, what was your favorite clause that you had put in your contract? My housing clause. I think I changed the housing component of, of the CFL. Personally, if I'm being honest, I don't know if I should disclose what it was, but um, it was my housing clause by far. Okay. You know, the, the, being in Montreal. Um, you know, the goal is to get as much, you know, untaxed money as you can. So you want to get as much money as you can in a signing bonus, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and if you can't get it in a signing bonus, the other way to get your money untaxed was to put it in housing or a travel expense or, um, you know, a workout bonus or, you know, did I say travel? Yeah. yeah you, you, yes. know, you can book flights, book flights, rental cars, hotels. You know, that was a way to get your money un- untaxed, you know, and, and still going against your contract number, but you didn't pay taxes on it. Okay. So, okay. you know, my, my, my housing contract basically was set up for, you know, 12 months a year. And it was, it was, it was, it was, it was very uh, beneficial for me and my family. 
Oh, for sure. I'll, I'll bet, especially since uh, well, Florida doesn't have a state uh, sales tax. So, I mean, or you're not. It had nothing to do with Florida because you know the money came from Canada. But you know, if you get a if you get a if you get a housing check, for example, most guys at the time were getting say twenty thousand. I think that was the, that was kind of the average, you know, for most guys to get twenty thousand for five months of housing, mm-hmm. and so or six months of housing, you get like five grand a month, you know, tax free at the beginning of the month to pay your rent and stuff. Right. Well, my contract was set up to do something like that for twelve months. Jeez! Wow. <laughs> yeah, I want uh, Cliff. Uh, I want I want SJ to represent me now. I'm signing him. Um, <laughs> I, I'm I, I'm telling you, that's <laughs> he's a very shrewd negotiator. <laughs> hey, SJ, in yeah, the time man, that you're the time you're in Montreal, where where uh, where did you stay? Just out of curiosity, what part of the city? I lived I lived kind of all over downtown. My first two years, I wasn't downtown. I was on the Blue Line Metro. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I was at like Papineau and what street is that, man? Papineau and Notre Dame. Okay. Okay. That sound right? No, 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 no that's not right. Jean Talon. Oh, okay. Jean-Talon. Okay, I know where you are. Okay. Yeah. So that, that was my first two years, and then I went to um, across the across the bridge on the south side. I think South Shore. Yep. The South Shore. Yep. I went out to South Shore in 2009. I roomed with Adrian McPherson, and then in 2010, I was at St. Laurent and Rene Levesque, and then I went to St. Matthew and Rene Levesque for 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. I was supposed to be in, is it Old No, it's not Old Port. It's pretty much Notre Dame and... Oh man, what's that street? It's on. The, it's like south, like kind of by the Bell Center. Oh, uh, Delicosha Chair. Yeah, no, it was that wasn't what Rene, they called it though. Rene Levesque. No, it wasn't Rene Levesque. It was south of Rene Levesque. It was south. It was like no. It was just south of Notre Dame. Um, I can't think of the name of the street though. Okay, I, I know the area you're talking about, but yeah, there's there's any number yeah. of streets I could, but okay, but, I, but yeah, I, that, that's what, that's that's kind of where I was throughout my time. Okay, all right, oh, okay, all right. So so now you've you've established yourself as a superstar here in Montreal. The fans love you. The 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 city has shown its love to you. We truly thought you were going to retire as a Montreal Alouette. I mean, like as as in play your entire playing career in Montreal and then retire. But unfortunately, as you had mentioned earlier, you tore your ACL in 2016. And then new management came in and decided that SJ Green probably wasn't the guy we thought he was going to be anymore. Can you take us through, first of all, the experience, of course, of tearing your ACL was absolutely devastating. But... You were coming back. You were planning to come back. You were working hard to come back, and then you find out that you've been traded to the Toronto Argonauts. Take us through that well, particular time period. So I'll take you through that that process. I was dealing with Cavis Reed because they had just fired Jim Pop. So Pop had got fired earlier that year, but you know, talking to Cavis Reed, I was due a bonus in January. So I got my bonus from Montreal in January, and I'm like, okay, and, they, and I wouldn't have got the bonus had I, had I not been hurt. They probably would have just cut me, in if, if they, if they, but they couldn't cut me because I was I was injured. So they had to give me the bonus. If if not, they probably just would have cut me and, and cut ties. But they were obligated to give me that. 
so talking to Cavis Reed, I remember having a conversation with him. I'm like, hey, Cavis, man, like, my doctor said I'm cleared to come to, to minicamp and, you know, participate and show you that, you know, I've been rehabbing, I'm ready. You know, no contact or no physical stuff, but I can come run around and do my thing and show you that, you know, I'm, I'm good. He's like, all right, get a doctor's note. I go through the trouble to get a doctor's note. You know, I left Montreal from getting my surgery and had my surgery done by Dr. Andrews in Pensacola, Florida. Because the Montreal doctors told me I probably wouldn't would never play again. Or I had a 30% chance of making it back. So I would get my doctor's note. I get cleared. I pass all my, all my, all my tests with my, with, my, uh, with my physician and everything. And I'm clear for activity and OTAs at the minicamp. Cavis shuts it down. He doesn't let me practice. He's, he says, man, if you get hurt, man, I got to pay you all your money all year. I'm like, okay, that's cool. I get that, but, you know, like, I get it, but I don't get it, you know? <clears throat> and so, and so uh, long story short, he doesn't let me participate in minicamp. Then he has to talk to me. He wants me to take a pay cut. He's like, I need you to take a pay cut. I'm like, uh, no, I'm not taking no pay cut because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be healthy. I'm healthy now. Like, I feel good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be ready to play. He's like, oh, yeah, man, most guys don't come back. They don't, they're not the same. La, da, da, da. I'm like, yeah, I'm not trying to hear none of that. I'm not taking a pay cut. Um, and at this time, I kind of know that Jim Pop is in Toronto at this time, too. So I'm like, I'm not taking a pay cut. Either, either you either release me or, or you keep me on this roster. But again, he couldn't really release me because I was injured, technically. Mm-hmm. So he's bluffing me, not knowing that I know what's going on. So long story short, he's like, man, do you want to take a pay cut or do you want to get traded? I'm like, trade me. He's like, where do you want to go? Toronto, Saskatchewan, or such and such and such. The whole time he's asking me these questions, he knows where I want to go. I'm like, send me to Toronto. And, and they sent me to Toronto. And that, that, lit, that lit a fuse under me because I was hurt, man. I didn't want to leave Montreal. Like, I never wanted to leave Montreal. I wanted to retire in Alouette and play my whole career for one team. And, you know, the whole shebang. And um, Cavis didn't trust me to come back and be myself. And so that's why I ended up getting traded to Toronto. Not because SK wanted to leave Montreal. Not because anything else but the fact that Cavis didn't trust that I was going to be who I was when I came back. Now, the Alouettes in 2017. uh, By the the way, Cliff, that's eye-opening. This is stuff that 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 fans don't hear, and it, as a fan and as a supporter of the team, SJ, it just frustrates me the hell all over again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 man. It, it was, it was, it was. I was a painful process for me because at that time I've been in Montreal for ten years, and like I love this city. I don't want to leave. Like I wanted to be, you know, like 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 Bowman was in Montreal. I wanted to play my whole career there and go out with a bang with Bowman and Chip and the guys that were, that were there when I came in, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's how I wanted to go out. I wanted to go out with my boys and, um, you know, so it hurt to leave and go to Toronto, but I do feel like it was something that was necessary and something that, that needed to happen. Mm-hmm. Looking back at it, you know, now, like as painful as it was to go through, it needed to happen. It was, it was time for change and, um, I needed that new scenery. Now, I've got to say, like 2017, the Alouettes under Cavis Reed went, I think, three and fifteen, and then you. Oh, I, I, pop- I enjoyed that so much. <laughs> uh, and this is where I'm getting to. I enjoyed. You, 
You always go three and fifteen with Cavis as the general manager. You go to Toronto with Jim Pop, Mark Trustman. You basically putting the whole band back together, so to speak. That of that uh, that Grey Cup run of yours. Like, was that not the best fu you can give somebody? Oh my goodness, man! I, I you can't describe that. I I can't even put it into words to be honest because, like, to play Montreal that year and beat them two out of three times. The first game back in Montreal was like so hard for me, mm. but but because you know I got booed by the fans. I'm like, what? What did I do? What, like, what, why do I deserve a boo? <laughs> you know, but <laughs> <laughs> I get it. It's sports, and you know, fans. You know, they ride with the team, not the players, all the time. And you know, I get it. But you know, that was frustrating. I wanted to perform. I think I had three catches for like 20 yards, so that was frustrating. But you know the other two games I played, you guys, I played Montreal. You know, I did. I had I had good games, and it, it felt it felt very very good to, to 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 do that. So, yeah, that was a that was one of the biggest fus that I've given out, and it felt very very good. And, and by the way, the the booing itself, I think if the fans knew SJ, what you told us tonight, I think they would understand a little bit more because, you know, people don't think of it as again they don't think of it as a business. They don't think of, of a player, if he is healthy, how the team is treating him, what the team has told him. You know, I mean, it's I, – I, I get it. Yeah, they, they, don't get, they don't get that part because the, the, the optics that, you know, are portrayed to the media are all meant to be, quote-unquote, you know, buttoned up and suited up, you know, for, for the world to, 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 to gnaw on. Yeah. Not knowing if it's true or not, you know? Mm-hmm. To keep it all sophisticated, I guess you can say, or keep it clean, or to mm. stay safe, so to speak. Yeah. But you know, I could have had this conversation a long time ago. It just wasn't. It wasn't the time to do that. You know, in that time. Yeah. No, that's it. And now playing for Toronto, uh, as I said, you in a lot of ways it felt like the band was getting back together because there was a lot of former Alouettes that you had played with and won great cups with and did incredible things with. Uh, I guess the biggest difference, obviously, though, would be you had Ricky Ray as your quarterback versus Anthony Calvillo. Uh, but very similar style as far as quarterback goes. Uh, what was it like playing with Ricky Ray versus uh, playing with AC? A lot of similarities, man. I mean, the level of preparation that went into those guys' games and the games that I played with those two was unfathomable. Like, to watch those guys prepare before games was, it was iconic because, you, you know, me knowing that, AC was who he was when I played with him. Like, I knew he was a legend. I knew he was going to be an all-time great or the all-time greatest in that league. And the accolades that I watched him, you know, pile up over the years. And then to to know who Ricky was when I got to play with Ricky, um, it was different perspectives for me because when I was with AC, I was a young pup. So I was the guy that was – I was quiet. You know, everything AC said was like gold. Not to say that it wasn't with Ricky, but um, I was more of an established player, so there was more of a mutual respect. Um, I feel at that point in my career, you know, not to say AC didn't respect me because he did, but it was just, it was different because AC saw me as the young SJ. Ricky saw me as, you know, a 33, 32 year old man, you know, you both had a pedigree. Exactly. So, but to play with, to play with both of them was truly a blessing for me. I would not ever say who I prefer to play with when it comes to those two. So I, if that's a question you guys wanted to ask, you can you can bypass that one. <laughs> but um, because I I enjoy playing with both of them, and I wouldn't want to slight either one of them or disrespect either one of them um, by saying I'd rather play with the other. 
because I truly enjoy playing with both of them. And, you know, I've never played with the quarterbacks of their caliber ever in my career until I played with those two guys. And I never had the type of success that I was able to attain as a player without before playing with those, you know, two guys. Like, playing with AC, I was able to attain 1,000-yard season, something I had never done in my football career. Playing with Ricky, I was able to have the best season of my statistical career statistical career as a 32-year-old, 11-year veteran. So, um, you know, I enjoyed every bit of playing with both of them, and both of those guys are great. Um, I just feel like I was more relatable to Ricky as a as a player-to-player player in that time of our career because we were, we were both older and more mature at that point and were able to watch each other's body of work progress over time from from opposite teams. And the, and the fact that... I think both quarterbacks were able to get the most out of you as well. I think you know, it's one of those things we talk about iron sharpen, iron sharpens iron. And I think those two, you made them great, but they also made you great as well. Yes, absolutely. We pushed each other to be great. And there was a level of accountability that, that was, you know, kind of unspoken, but there um, when it came to, you know, the dynamic between, you know, myself and those guys, you know, there was like an, an un, unsaid, uh, that uh, un- an unsaid um, expectation that was just, you know, in place. And we, you know, we went after that every day. Mm-hmm. Hey, tell, tell us about the, the Grey Cup that year, man, because in 2017, I mean, I don't think, as far as I remember, I don't think you, you'd ever played in snow before. And that game was just absolutely bonkers. I mean, for you guys, how you guys came back, was able to, to beat, you know, which I would, you know, I think at the time a very uh, highly favored Calgary Stampeders team. But tell us about, the, you know, I remember I was I was actually there, SJ, sitting in the press box watching this game. And this this game was a sight to see. I can only imagine what it was like on the field. It was a beautiful place to visit. Um, I mean, not visit, but a beautiful place to experience, like, visually. Mm-hmm. Um, like, to see this, like, to go in and, come out in warm ups and it's like cold but there's no snow like to be seen and then you come out and after you know you go in for warm ups and you come out and everything is white it's like whoa <laughs> like, where did all that come from like I've never seen this in my life on a football field like I, I feel like a kid on the playground so you know that was a new experience for me but the game you know the game it was it was up and down you know the fourth quarter came and it was looking like they were about to go up and score and put the game put the game kind of out of reach with with a little bit of time left and we get that fumble and Cassius Vaughn goes rumbles for a hundred and some yards fumble recovery for a touchdown and then man we get the ball we get the ball with an opportunity to go back down and, and kick a field goal for the lead and I was able to catch the ball to you know kind of uh, keep that drive going for a first down and get us a little bit closer. So that was that was that was that was that was an experience too because, you know, that year winning that Great Cup was a different perspective for me too. Because the years that I won in Montreal, I was again the younger player. Um, but in in Toronto, I was I was I was I was I was, the, I was the number one guy. But we had Devere Posey and Armani Edwards and 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 um, Jeff Fuller and those guys, and it just felt. For me, I was able to teach more and give back more to the guys that were up under me. And when I say up under me, I mean age-wise, you know, guys that, you know, were, were kind of you know, diving into their professional career at the next level who had, you know, had maybe done some good things at a college level but were kind of finding themselves as pros. 
um, that was that was rewarding for me because I was able to help those guys grow and you know be better for themselves and their families too. And uh, you know, a, a lot of the guys in Toronto that year, we kind of called ourselves the Redeem Team. You know, Tressman had been fired from Chicago. Jim Pop had been fired. From, I'm sorry, Tressman had been fired from Baltimore. Um, Pop had been fired from Montreal. I had been cut from from uh, Montreal. I had been traded from Montreal. Devere Posey had been cut from the NFL. Marcus Ball had been cut from the NFL. Bear Woods had been cut from or uh, traded from Toronto, from Montreal. Um, Cassius Vaughn had been cut from Hamilton. Like we had so many guys that were that were cut, and we put a team together kind of at the last minute, um, and we and we were able to win a win a championship, and guys were able to you know kind of redeem their their careers and get paid again, and get and get another contract, and so that was big because um, you know we were all kind of at a point of our career where we wanted to prove the 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 the, the, the critics wrong or the, the analytics wrong that you know we weren't washed up, we weren't done, we still have something left. Um, and that was that was a big moment for all of us. I think if you talk to anybody on that team, which is why it was difficult to keep us together, you know, for 18 and 19, because, you know, we had that successful year in in 17 and guys wanted to get paid because most guys were playing on on structured contracts that weren't really reflective of their value, their true value. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, um, you know, guys wanted to get paid and you can't blame them for that. We had a successful year. And so that was the reason why I ended up signing the contract for less than what I had played for the year before. But I was cool because I knew I was still getting paid good money, but and other guys needed to get paid too, and I wanted to try to run a, you know, win another great cup. And of course, as you said, it was about redemption. So you, you, I think you just wanted to prove that you were who we expected you to be, and then some. And I think, I guess yeah. in a lot of ways, that was kind of your redemption right there, was to be able to say yes. I am still that guy. I am still a winner. I am still a champion. I am still the best receiver in the CFL. That's how that was my mindset, at least. Now I, I got to ask uh, you. You bring up Devere Posey, who set the 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 record for having the longest TD reception in the Grey Cup. Does that does do you kind of wish that was you that was able to do, get that pass from Ricky Ray, <laughs> or are you just so happy that it was Devere that it was able to set that mark? You said, was I happy for him? Were you happy for him? Or was there a little part of you that was like, that should have been me? <laughs> Not at all. Because, again, you know, at that time, I, I had just had the that season, I was – I just put up almost 1,500 yards receiving, I think 10 touchdowns, over 100 catches for the first time in my career. So I was I was complete. With, you know, only thing I needed was a championship. And, you know, I wanted Devere and I wanted Armani to get 1,000-yard seasons also. And I knew that, you know, by Devere doing what he did in the Grey Cup, that he was going to set himself up to get paid the money that he wanted to get paid. And he ended up going back to the NFL and go to, to go to Camel Baltimore that year, which is what, you know, he opted to do. You know, we had a conversation about that, too, and I'll leave that for him to talk about. But, um, you know, he had an opportunity to get paid in the CFL, but he wanted to go back to the NFL and try to, you know, make a bigger difference in his life. And you can't blame him for that. No, 100% not. Now, after things worked out, went the way they did in Toronto, you got your championship, you got your redemption, you made your way to the XFL 2.0. You end up, uh, well, you technically started with Seattle, but then you end up uh, being reunited yet again with Mark Trestman in Tampa Bay. Uh, 
tell us, I, I, it wasn't for very long because of COVID, uh, basically shutting things down, but talk to us about the XFL experience, what it was like for you in, in that time period. Okay, so I could take you back through that again. So that's kind of when I alluded to, alluded to the market flipping when Speedy Banks became the MOP in 2019. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, without going into too much specifics, um, my contract was worth more than Speedy Banks' contract the year he won MOP. I don't know what happened or what he did exactly, but I'm under the impression that he took a deal, you know, potentially. Um, he took a, he, t- he signed a contract, but on the paper, it didn't show that, you know, I don't think he signed, I don't think everything that he got was on paper is all I'm going to say. And again, the market flipped because I feel like he signed a contract that on paper that reflected a number that was, that was not, indicative of a 1,500-yard, 15-touchdown, most valuable player of the league contract. Are you picking up what I'm putting down, or are you, are you, mm-hmm. are you don't? Are yeah, you, no, no. No, we here? get it, man. We get it. Yeah. Okay, uh, yeah. So, you know, again, without saying too much, I just feel like, and that was that was the moment for me where I feel like maybe Toronto was, I didn't hear from Toronto in regards to an extension. I talked to some other teams in the CFL um, in the beginning of free agency about, you know, um, you know, potentially playing with them, but for me, for the money they were offering at that time, I wasn't willing to not go back to Toronto or Montreal. It was either Toronto or Montreal for me. And, uh, the money that was being offered from nothing from Toronto and the money that was being thrown at me from Montreal wasn't worth me playing and for that amount of money in the CFL anymore. Mm -hmm. That's just how I felt about it. And so, Mark Cheston became the XFL head coach in the city that I lived in, which is Tampa. And I got on the phone with Mark Tressman and we talked and he's like, Hey man, why don't you come down here and do, you know, like a, a, a um, you know, an informal internship where, you know, you kind of work with the coaches sit in the meetings and, you know, learn the front office uh, aspect of the game because I was aspiring to be a general manager at the time. And I still have that dream too. I just, you know, I, I've been doing other things momentarily to, to, to keep me, keep me, uh, keep me busy. But, um, they're like, why don't you come over here and you know just learn, just learn to lay the land a little bit and kind of you know, wet your feet some. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm in meetings and then you know, a week goes by, and he's like, hey man, you want to play? I'm like, nah, man, I'm not ready to play, man. You know, I'm just talking. I'm not thinking it's serious. He's like, hey, no, I'm serious. You want you want to play? I feel like if I can talk to the right people, you know, they you know you can get paid a decent amount of money and you know potentially uh play play here in your hometown and i'm like huh you know what so you know you know my plan was to play in the xfl make the money that i made from them which was a good amount of money uh, for the for the two games that i that i suited for the four weeks that i was with them i made over six figures playing in that little bit of time so it was well worth the opportunity to go there because i was able to be at home and make good money but um my plan was to double dip and make you know, my last year in the CFL, you know, a hell of a year, you know, was playing in the XFL and doubling down in the CFL, you know, on the back half and still make the money that they were going to offer me on top of the money that I was going to make in the CFL. So it made sense to me, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, in the XFL. So it made sense to me to try to, you know, do both. And uh, week five comes, week five or six comes in the XFL, 
And quite honestly, man, I'm not, I'm not myself. I'm not ready. I'm not healthy. I haven't put in a full offseason to play, you know, seven more games. So I was kind of, you know, doing too much, if you will. I was kind of, I guess, uh, putting too much on my plate, you know? And, um, were you, you were distracted or do you put too much on your plate? I, I, was, I, was, I wasn't distracted. It was different for me because I wasn't used to being at home and playing football. Ah, uh, okay. So that was new. Okay. That was a different dynamic. And, and, and also, like, my body just wasn't – at this point, I'm 34. I'm turning 35 in June. And, you know, at this point, you know, I always take my offseason so serious and I put the work in and I grind. But I was just in that rebuild phase of, you know, building myself back up to to play again, to get ready for an offseason. Right. And when I signed in the XFL, I had really only had – one week, I'm sorry, one month of of, of, of off season, and I really hadn't even started working out for it because I was still sore from the CFL season. So when I when I finally got to the XFL and you know the the COVID week week six, they they folded the season. It just kind of like a blessing in disguise for me because I was there's no way I would have got through that season. Right. No way. I just physically I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't. I wasn't. My body wasn't. wasn't. wasn't working with me. When, you didn't feel like you could be the SJ Green that we've come to know and expect out of you. Is that what you're saying? No. There's no way I was going to be able to to do that in that XFL season at that time. I just. I. My body wasn't physically ready. And um. Again, I didn't have time to prepare for that. It. It was all kind of last minute. And so um. I mean, I was grateful for the opportunity and, you know, thankful for the money that I was able to make in that shorter period of time. But, you know, all in all, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't, I was nowhere near where I needed or, or felt comfortable being to play a full season or to play any type of season. I had to, I had to at least ask, because obviously we're talking about COVID here. When you heard the CFL wasn't going to play in 2020, what was your initial thought? Because obviously everybody's talking about, Oh, they could have survived. You know, if they get funding, this or that and the other. What What was your initial thought when you heard the CFL wasn't going to play in 2020? It was, selfishly, it was yes. You know, that was that was my selfish me saying like, okay, if I can't play, nobody's playing. Right. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> so I, I was kind of happy about that. But then you know, 2020 came around, and I was like, no, no I'm sorry, 2021 came. And I was sick to my stomach having to watch CFL highlights and not be a part of it. Like I felt so lost and like hopeless. Like I was, I was defeated. I felt defeated. I felt depressed. Like I was not happy to have to, to, to be watching CFL football, something, I, something that I had been a part of for the last 13 years. And now all of a sudden they're playing, and I'm not out there. So no team, no team reached out to you in 2021 at all. Yeah, Montreal reached out to me in 21, um, and in 20 also because they were gonna, they were thinking about a bubble season. Okay. And so I think Montreal reached out to me in 2021, but at that time, I was I was I was I was out of it. It was over. What got, you said you were depressed and stuff watching the the highlights and stuff in 2021. What what got you through the season? What 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 righted your ship, so to speak? 
watching my son play and watching NFL football. Watching my son play and watching NFL is was my medicine. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and at what point did you decide? Okay, it's time to call it a career. Like, what was there any one particular moment, or was it really just going through twenty twenty and twenty twenty one? It was it was in August of twenty twenty. You know, I didn't I didn't take much time to to make the transition. Uh, I went ahead and started my business, and I haven't looked back since. If I'm being honest with you, I, 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 I just knew that in August when the season folded that I wasn't going back to play anymore. I didn't want to sit out a whole year. I'll be 36. Like, nah, I'm good. I'm going to just put this time into my son. You know, because the reality is 2020 was going to be my last season because I was going to be 14 years playing. My son will be going to high school as a freshman, and I want to be there for all of that. So that, was, that 2014 was my last year no matter what. I'm sorry. 2020 was my last season, no matter what. Like that was that was happening. It was over for me. No matter what happened in 2020, I was 2021 was my last season. Okay. Um, how did uh how did the whole one day contract come about for the for the Alouettes? Because I'm sure it just like Cliff and myself, fans were just absolutely ecstatic to hear that you were going to be signing that one day contract to retire as a member of the Montreal Alouettes. Because you know, as you said earlier in the interview. You'd hope to stay the entire career and to retire as an owl. This this way, with this one day contract, you were going to retire as a Montreal Alouette. How did the uh, how that whole uh, process come about? Well, um, Delorier Eric Delorier works in the front office, and um, you know we're good friends. We were. I would always come up to stay at Eric's house um, in the preseason um, after we broke camp. Until um, I found my, my apartment, he'd always let me crash on his on his couch, and um, so I I, I re- always kept in touch with him and uh, Luke Berdurjardin. I always kept in touch with LBJ too, and um, you know they were both on the staff, and I kind of talked to both of them about you know just you know, I want to retire as an Alouette, just to you know kind of close this chapter in my life so I can officially be you know move on because for 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 the time. From 2019 to 2022, approximately, it was it was hard for me to um, get over not being on a football field. Like I, I, I struggled mentally because uh, I didn't know anything else. That's all I knew was preparing for football for six months and playing for six months. Mm-hmm. All season for six months, play for six months, and I got so used to that routine over the course of 13 years that when I wasn't doing that anymore, I I felt I was lost. Okay. I was lost. Well, obviously, you know, I got to see you when you came up, you know, when you came for we, you know, the the team gave you your your day. Obviously, it was great meeting you again cuz it, it had been years since I I, I think I I'd, I met you had met, met you years before on the field and <coughs> being able to reconnect with you again. It was just it was just so fun, SJ, because obviously with being around the Alouettes as long as I have, you know, you are, you are a Montreal Alouette to me and to many other fans. And we're just, we're just grateful to that you, uh, you were able to, uh, to, to sign that one day contract to uh, end the, your career as an Alouette and hopefully sometime soon enter the CFL hall of fame as a Montreal Alouette. That would be the icing on the cake for me. Um, 
you know, I know I have no control over that. And I, I hope and pray that, you know, one day it comes into fruition. You know, but until that time comes, man, I'm appreciative of my time in Montreal. I, I appreciate you guys taking the time to allow me to tell my, my, my story or my version of, you know, what kind of took place in certain periods of my career. And, um, you know, playing in Canada and being in, in Montreal will always be forever um, buried in my, in, my, in my mind, forever. So thank you, guys. Oh, well, listen, bef- before we let you go, I do want to get a couple of personal things uh, out of the way. Um, first of all, for those of you who don't know, SJ stands for Solomon Jr., now you're it's not just junior, like you're actually Solomon Junior Junior, if I recall. No, so my name is Solomon H. Green the second. Okay. No technically on my birth certificate it's the second, not junior. Oh. But okay. so, but in, in theory, they're both the same thing. Okay. And so, you know, I guess my family decided to go with SJ, which is Solomon Jr. as opposed to S2. <laughs> so, um, SA sounds better to me anyway, so I'll, I'll stick with that one. <laughs> okay. So I always thought, like, wait a minute. So his name is Solomon Jr. So so he's Solomon, and your dad's Solomon as well. So it's like, so he's Solomon Jr. Jr.? Like, <laughs> no, so no, no. My dad, is, my dad is Solomon H. Green. Mm-hmm. He's like the first. His dad is Solomon Green Sr., but he doesn't have. Um, a middle name, so he, he can't really be, my dad can't really be named directly after him, so that's why the second comes to me instead of me being the third. Right. So then, now your son, who's also a Solomon, is he he's Solomon Jr.? He's the third. Okay, so, so he's, he's SJ3. <laughs> yeah, I call him S. And and now, now, now that you're involved in getting him ready to eventually get into a career in football, uh, Talk to us about like what what when you, do you, how much of yourself do you see in young SJ? I see a lot of myself in, in young SJ, um, a lot of myself. Um, but if I'm being completely honest, I see more of my personality in my daughter, more of my sports personality in my daughter. Mm. Okay. But my but 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 you know, I do see a lot of. Uh, similarity, similarities with me and my son as well. We do have a lot of um, characteristics that resemble each other when, when, like when, when he's on the field. I can, I can look at him and see myself in, in a lot of different facets of his game. Do you think he feels the pressure knowing what kind of a career you had as a receiver? And now he, I, I know he does both uh, DB and uh, receiver, but do you think he feels that pressure of trying to live up to your name as, as far as what you did on the football field? You know, I sure hope he doesn't, and I don't think he does. I don't think he does. Um, I ask him all the time, you know, because I, I want to make sure that whatever he's doing, he's doing something. He's doing what he wants to do, not because he feels like he's making me proud or putting a smile on my face. Mm-hmm. Like I always tell him, like you know, don't play football because of me. Play football because it's something you love to do. Because in reality, you know, I've already played. I've played my football. I've played. I've had my career. I've had my fun. I had my moment of, you know, of being the guy and, and playing the game at a high level, and my time is up. So there's no reason for him to feel like he has to, you know, have any pressure on his back. You know, the only pressure I put on my son and the only pressure I hope that he feels is the pressure to always give me 100% effort. Mm-hmm. That's the only pressure that I, that I, I 
you know, verbally expressed to him, like the the pressure to perform, you should never feel. Don't feel pressure to perform to put a smile on my face, because I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be happy if you perform, but you gave me half ass effort. Excuse my language. Mm-hmm. I'd rather you give me a hundred percent effort, and your performance is mediocre, but I know you gave me everything you got. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a firm believer in if you if you put the work in and you prepare and you and you and you go like you like like it's your last time ever gonna play. Good things will happen, you know, and um, that's what I'm really trying to get him to uh, to feel and understand is that the pressure is to give your give your best at all times, not to perform or put up statistics statistics that are going to blow people out of the water, but because that's not sustainable. What's sustainable is the pressure of feeling like you have to give your best. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fair. So that's and... the only pressure. That's the only pressure I hope he feels. Well, and listen, you know, like, like I said, you, you're so good about posting his highlights and showing everything he does. And I mean, my gosh, I mean, he's, he's definitely got it. I, I definitely think, uh, you know, if he, if he keeps up with, you know, the hard work and everything like that, I, I definitely think, who knows, we could be seeing SJ Green yet again in the CFL, but the younger version. <laughs> Hopefully, and, man. And I would not be mad. I would not be mad to say, oh, my God. If he's half as good as what his old man was, then get excited because you got a superstar right here. <laughs> yeah, man, I hope so, man. I got to give his mom credit for for the, for the for the videos because I can't record, I can't record and watch at the same time. I, I mess it up all the time. So all the good videos you guys get, that's courtesy of his mom. So um, she does an amazing job with that. All right. Well, well, shout out to your wife because yeah, definitely. Like you, you see what he's able to do on the field, and it's it's outstanding stuff. And to think it's only going to get better that that's got to be exciting for you and exciting for him as well as far as his a few his uh, football future goes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully following him around on Saturdays and you know being being in somebody's college stadium. Well, that's it. That, that's what it's all about. <laughs> and by the way, Cliff, I just can't believe you called a 37-year-old man an old man. <laughs> <laughs> football well, old. I am old. Football years old. Yeah, football years. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, before before we let you go, SJ, it, it, I know you said a ton of stuff when you were there, when, they, when you had your day in Montreal, but if you were to say one last thing to whether it be Owls fans, Argos fans, CFL fans in general— what what would you want to, what would you, what would you want to let them know um man i could say so many different things but i'll try to keep it short and sweet i mean just you know i'm just appreciative of the opportunity that i was blessed with to come to canada and provide a living for my for my family um i'm forever grateful for the fans in montreal i'm forever grateful for the fans in toronto and i'm forever for grateful for the fans in all of canada and cfl that ever supported me or ever cheered for me when I made a when I made a play. Um, I'm extremely thankful for you guys, and I love Canada and Montreal and Toronto forever, man. It'll always be a part of my heart, and um, I'll never forget you guys, never. So thank you for all the fond memories. Well, SJ, I mean, again, having watched your career basically from the start. And seeing everything that you've done here in Montreal and even in Toronto as well, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take anything away from that as well. Like your body of work overall is when I when I call you an Alouettes legend, I mean it 100. percent I mean I will go so far as to even say CFL legend. I mean you definitely put out 
a tremendous, tremendous portfolio. Uh, you, you definitely made a lot of people here in Montreal happy. Uh, it, it's, it's such an honor and a privilege to be able to call you a friend and to see everything that you've done and knowing that it's just going to be a matter of time. I'm telling you right now, it's just a matter of time before the Canadian Football Hall of Fame calls you and asks you to join those ranks because to me, that that's the only team that you have left to qualify for and become a member of is the, the Hall of Fame. As far as I'm concerned, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when you get to join that very, very elite group. Well, I hope you I hope you're right, Cliffy, because I, I really I really want to be there, man. Um you know, the ultimate ultimate compliment is to be a part of a special group like that. You know, part of the elites that played the game. Um you know, that, that's 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 kind of sports heaven, you know, the Hall of Fame. So if you can make it to that point, um I guess you can say mission accomplished, you know. Hundred percent. SJ, my God, it, it's it's been a journey. It, it's been this has been quite some time in the making. Uh, the fact that you've been able to join us for our 200th episode speaks volumes to you and to you know what you've meant to this organization. And we cannot thank you enough for coming on and sharing your story. And I, I sincerely hope that you'll come back to Montreal. You and your family will be back to Montreal. See Alouette's games again. Uh, just being part of this great fraternity. We can't thank you enough for everything you have done for the city of Montreal as a member of the Alouettes. We we appreciate everything you have done for us, and sincerely, we wish you nothing but the best going forward in the next chapter of your life. And we sincerely hope that we will get to cross paths one day again, whether it's here in Canada or beyond, as far as you know the football landscape goes. Well, I appreciate it, man. Business business is booming, man. <laughs> it sure is <laughs> uh, SJ once again thank you so much for joining us here on the flight deck uh, wish you all the best and uh, by all means don't be a stranger you know you've got a home here in Montreal you know you can come to Personal Wilson Stadium anytime and everybody everybody that's in tennis is going to love to see you again man I can't wait till I get to come back and see all those beautiful faces man and you know, feel those emotions again because every time I come into that stadium, it just it feels right. So I look forward to the day I get to come back to Montreal and and uh, see the fans of Montreal again. Great episode. So much I have learned about not only SJ, but obviously the in, ins and outs of the workings within the CFL itself for a player. We always seem to learn so much more uh, than we did when it comes to talking with players, especially, uh, you know, a CFL alum and vets uh, when it comes to them talking about their time in the CFL. 100%. And as I've said, I've known SJ now for just about his entire CFL career and always a class act on and off the field. Uh, just an absolutely great dude. Uh, I'm so thankful we were able to make this happen. I, I, we had talked about it uh, ourselves for quite some time and it was just a matter of it seems like it's just a matter of getting the timing right and i'm so thankful that we were able to get it make it happen now especially for our 200th episode uh once again sj green thank you so much for not just being a, a part of the show tonight but also being a part of alouette's nation for everything that you've done for the city of montreal for the canadian football league i, I mean we, we could be here for hours singing your praises. So thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you. We appreciate everything that you've done for this city, this league, and you know, just everything you have done has just been absolutely tremendous. Once again, thank you so much. And man, man, just 
what more is there to say? That's <laughs> Jay Green, dude. I know. Let us know what you guys thought about the episode. Uh, what were your favorite parts? Um, you can email us uh, at the flight deck. You can email me at tim.capper at alowitzflightdeck.ca. You can email Cliff at cliffyd.pine at alowitzflightdeck.ca. Don't forget to follow us over on all of our socials and make sure you do stay tuned also for, uh, for episode 201 in which we will be talking about uh, the Alouettes home opener uh, and season opener that was held versus the Ottawa Red Blacks. Uh, again, stay tuned for that. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, if it you know if it weren't for you, Cliff, and it weren't for you, the fans listening, we would not have gotten to to 200 episodes. Here's to 200 and 200 and 200 more of of the shows. Uh, again, uh, I appreciate you, dude, being with me, and uh, uh, let's uh, again let's go for 200 more. Oh, 100%. And there is absolutely nobody else that I would want to do this show with. 200 in the can is so tremendous. It's such a, a great accomplishment. And absolutely, I, I've said this to you on numerous occasions, I want to see how far we can go with this. I, we've accomplished a lot, but I still feel there's so much more to accomplish. There's still so many more hills to climb. And I couldn't think of anyone else that I'd rather climb those hill, hills with than you, Tim. I'm, I'm thankful to have you on board this crazy project. And Man, I, I, I'm excited. I'm truly excited to see where it goes from here. And now that we've reached 200, I'm looking forward to episode 300, 400, and so on. And as I said, let's see how far we can take this, and let's just keep the party going, man. Exactly, exactly. I appreciate you, dude, and obviously we appreciate you, you the listener. Um, so we will be back for the next episode. Uh, stay tuned for episode 201 and beyond. So for everybody here at the Alouette's Flight Deck, for Cliffy D, I'm Tim Capper. Ron, final approach. Thanks for listening. Find more great shows like this at CF Pod Network on Twitter.